Good morning, folks. It's time for Democratic Perspective, brought to you by the Verde Valley Independent Democrats, a weekly talk show about the crucial political issues facing the Verde Valley, Sedona, Northern Arizona, and the nation at large. Join us for a stimulating, thought-provoking discussion. You'll get the facts as we focus on the challenges facing everyone. Good morning, folks. Welcome again to Democratic Perspective. We have with us on the show today uh, Michael Austin. Michael Austin is the provost and uh, vice uh, president for academic affairs of the University of Evansville in Evansville, Indiana. And uh, we started talking with Michael back in um, 2013 when he had written a really interesting book um, which was, I think, what was the title, Mike? Mike well, that's, that's not, not what, what they meant. That's not what they meant uh, about the Constitution and the uh, constitutional founders and what they were actually talking about and what the Constitution was like. And there have been other authors that we've now uh, interviewed over the years, and it, it pretty much all dovetailed. And um, it, it, it in over the years, so, so Michael has written some uh, really interesting books. He wrote a book on the Second Amendment, which is really not about what anybody's arguing about today, according to according to your work, right? And yes, you wrote correct. a book, a very good book on on Job, understanding Job, and we actually interviewed you about Job, even though this is theoretically a political show. And now you have a have a new book out, where it came out in two thousand and nineteen. And, uh, and it's, what is the, what is the name? We don't, we must not be enemies. And it's a quote from Abraham Lincoln's, uh, inaugural address. A quote from his first inaugural address where he's addressing the, uh, the United States. The Civil War has not started yet, but seven of the eventual 11 states have seceded. And he's trying to convince the rest of the states to stay, uh, to not secede. And uh, and he says at the very end, we must not be enemies, we, we must be friends, and goes on to talk about the concept of the United States and, and to plead with people to disagree in a way that is short of outright civil war, to find more productive ways to disagree, because Lincoln understood that disagreement drives democracy. You, you can't actually have a democratic society without debate and disagreement. So how we disagree becomes really, really important. And Lincoln, and I happen to agree with him, thought that uh, that seceding and uh, plunging the nation into a hellish civil war for five years was not a particularly good strategy for disagreement. So it's how you handle uh, disagreements. And you introduce, or actually, I read Aristotle, but I didn't remember his his concept of uh, civic friendship. Basically, mm-hmm. how do you disagree, but you don't try to destroy the people that you disagree with? What we see now around the world, whether you're looking at Turkey or Hungary or uh, Russia, is um, Potentates essentially, and in, in, uh, they call themselves presidents. They're elected, but once in office, they systematically, systematically distort the democratic system or republican system in such a way as that only they can win, 
And we see it this all over uh, the world. And I think with uh, Donald Trump's uh, latest uh, uh, election, we saw it here in the Un- United States. Yeah, it's uh, democracy is hard. That's why it took a, a long time to develop uh, after after the demise of the democracy in Athens and and the republican government in Rome. It took thousands of years for democracy to be reestablished. Uh, authoritarianism is a lot easier. You have to do less. The the public has to do less. You know, one of the foundations of this book, one of the the premises that it's based on, is that human beings usually end up with the government that they deserve. Uh, yeah. That uh, that we we a lot of people don't want to do the work to live in a democratic society, and those people will end up not living in a democratic society. You know, we we have a very polarized country right now. And we have a very polarized government, and the the government is a consequence of our inability to get along with each other. Um, and you know we're not supposed to agree with each other. That's that's really foundational. If you look at Madison's tenth uh, and fifty first Federalist Papers, two of the greatest documents of uh, democratic citizenship ever written. We are supposed to disagree. Those disagreements are supposed to be passionate. We're supposed to feel strongly about our causes. Uh, but we're also, we've got, if we're going to have a democracy, we've got to have enough unity behind the disagreement uh, that says that we all want to keep having a democracy and we don't want to do things to break the form of government in order to win the next fight. And that's, that's called democratic restraint. We don't ever exercise all of the power that we can, or we don't punish the other side completely because we want the game to go on. We don't want to destroy the very system of government that we have when we're winning, because then it won't be there when we're not winning. So there's a kind of reciprocity, right? Um, if if we win the election, then... then uh... Then we take office. If you if you lose it, you accept the fact that we are won the election, and that's the kind of key to it. Now, when I was growing up, one of the signature issues of the time, one of the most important issues, was segregation. I grew uh-huh. up in a border state. We had some segregation. It was not like Mississippi or something, but we had segregation, and it was a tremendous fight. And I mean, I participated in sit-ins. People were not happy with our action. I went around and we, with a, a black friend of mine, and we tested to see who was discriminating against uh, African Americans in housing. So we, it was very confrontational. And to some extent, we didn't feel that we could compromise with segregation, with the importance importation of segregation into Oklahoma from Southerners. We didn't feel that that was really a compromise. That's, we thought that's something that has to be fought out. So how do you fight out something like that in a way that maintains the civic unity of the country? Because it was an intense issue, and I think people have seen pictures of the way that uh, demonstrators were treated in the South, and some of my friends very badly treated, others almost lynched, how do you deal with that in terms of 
civility in a in the deeper sense, not in being polite, but in maintaining a civil society. Well, there are a lot of times in our history, there have been a lot of times in our history where a democracy has been strained to the breaking point. Uh, it is only broken once, and that was during the Civil War. Uh, but the segregation era, the Jim Crow era, the, these were very, very difficult times. And you're right. It's, it's, it, when you're talking about human, basic human rights, compromise doesn't make sense. But I think you have to start with the premise that either we're going to have some kind of compromise or we're going to have a civil war. Because really, those are your only two choices. There were a lot of compromises on the road to full civil rights. It did not happen overnight. It happened incrementally over many years, and we're still not there yet. So uh, there were compromises. There were things that were worked through. Um, and and they're not there because we think it's good to compromise. We're there because this is just how our government works. So I remember um, I was in a sit-in in uh, Lawton, Oklahoma, the last uh, lunch counter in Oklahoma that would not serve uh, African-American folks. And um, we went and sat in. They called the police. There are all these sirens going on in the distance. The sit-in was led by an African-American woman who was the head of the youth chapter of the NAACP. She was managing this sit-in. It was called a soft sit-in, but it was unclear whether what was going to happen. And what happened was very interesting to me. I was uh, one of the first people up to the lunch counter, and then I went and sit down among the stacks. And I'm sitting there in this giant, you know, a Bull Connor-looking uh, policeman comes in the door, basically almost waddles into the door. He looks like the absolute stereotype of the racist southern cop. And he and and the woman um, who was managing the uh, sit-in spoke to each other politely. And he said something like, well, Loretta, what's it going to be? Is this a soft one or a hard one? Hard sit-in, they have to arrest you. You're not going anyway. Soft sit-in, you're making a protest, and you're going to leave if they let you leave. And you never know whether that's going to happen. But what struck me was the friendship, that they, the respect, the sort of friendship between these absolute polar opposite people. You know, there's a, a wonderful passage. Um, I first read it in Taylor Branch's uh, History of the Civil Rights. Uh, but there's a, a scene in which John F. Kennedy calls Orville Farbus, the governor of Arkansas, before the, uh, before the huge, um, protests. And, you know, Kennedy's planning to activate the National Guard. And, um, and, they argue for like 20 minutes over whether or not they're going to have guns drawn and whether or not the guns are going to be loaded. You know, Kennedy had to agree to, to f- put some pressure on the governor in order to make it work. Um, and the governor wanted more pressure being put on him before he gave in. It was stage managed. And that's, that was a compromise. That's a political compromise. You know, there's, there's nothing uncivil about civil disobedience. 
Civil disobedience is a, a an ancient and well-recognized strategy for trying to change things by breaking the law and accepting the consequences of, of breaking the law, and that's that's what a sit-in is. Um, I think that one of the reasons that the civil rights movement was so effective in this country is that Dr. King um, insisted on civil disobedience and not criminal disobedience, not rioting and breaking windows and and trying to stage a revolution. And that made it much more difficult to ignore uh, the civility of the civil rights movement um, was was just strategically um, a, a very, very powerful move. So I think that sit-ins and demonstrations and marches, these are examples of how democracy does work when there are passionate disagreements. Um, it's, they're not, they're not advantage, they're not examples of democracy breaking down. They're examples of democracy stepping up. I guess what, what I'm looking at now, oh, and incidentally, um, the guy who owned the place was, name was Earl, and, uh, and the police officer said to, uh, to Loretta, she said, oh, he's just a jerk. The old guy never learned anything. So he didn't actually really want to enforce segregation in this lunch counter. He just didn't want any trouble. It was a very different yeah. mindset. And he didn't have any respect for the guy who was being difficult and just refusing to change. So the, it, the world is more complicated than, than, than I thought. And I was very young then. So it was a kind of, a kind of lesson to me. I guess I see now um, in our current situation um, the country more divided than I've ever seen it, even during the civil rights movements um, and some of the aftermath, Vietnam, certainly at least that um, level. When you look at I, when I look at South Africa and I look at Dr. King's and, and many of his associates' uh, uh, approach to politics, I can see that good leadership can prevent a lot of violence and can bring change without um, bloody revolution or attempts to have it. But when you don't have good leadership, when you have very bad leadership, and I'm thinking of Donald Trump, it can it can take things very much another way. It depends a lot on on who they are, who leading the country or is attempting to lead the country. Well, there, there's a huge difference between leading people and and being at the head of people and following what they want to do. Uh, and I think that's what we're seeing now. I mean, there are a number of things that I think contribute to uh, a very divided. And it, this is not the most divided the country has ever been. That would be the Civil War. We're not uh, we're not firing shots on each other. We're not lining up on on the border states and, and having warfare. But um, we have a very efficient, we have very efficient technology for sorting people into different groups and allowing people to spend most of their time either personally or virtually with people who agree with them. And we have a lot of leaders who aren't willing to lead. They just want to follow. They want to give people what they want 
Uh, and we have these on both sides of the aisle. I do think it's, it's more prominent on the right side of the aisle, and I think that Donald Trump uh, was an example of somebody who, who wasn't interested in leading people. He had some people who, uh, who put him where he was, and he wanted to give them whatever they wanted so that they would keep him in power. And he let uh, let people dictate his policies rather than challenging people to do better. And uh, and we've always had some politicians who do that, but we've also had politicians who've challenged us a little bit. You know, Abraham Lincoln challenged us. He uh, he didn't simply do what people wanted him to do uh, on either side of of the big big issues and. That's that's a, a rare kind of leadership, and and it's really hard in a democracy for a leader to take that position because there certainly are people who would take that position, but they can't get elected. People yeah. get elected by pandering to the people who vote. That's when I, I've encouraged uh, moderate or even, fact, in fact, conservative Republicans to run for office in, here in Arizona, and they've said to me, we can't get out of the primary. It's just a waste yeah. of time. We just can't get out of the primary. And I, I, I think that's a, a lot. What I see is, is, is what you were speaking to earlier, which is we have two constellations of people around very, very different ideas who are do, both sides are in a kind of feedback system. Uh, that reinforces their views, and I, I see it. I see it on the on the liberal side as as well as 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 on the conservative and right wing side. Um, and I think, to some extent, we're we're not we're really not talking to each other. So, I was looking at the Biden cabinet, and I think fifteen uh, minute fifteen member cabinet, and I think only six of the fifteen members. Are uh, heterosexual white males, right? Only six. Forty years ago, it would be you know fourteen of them. So when a lot of my right wing sort of, I don't think that they ideologically are white supremacists, but they identify with being white as against being other groups, and they didn't uh, identify with being here a long time, even if you know they're. Um, uh, Polish and Irish and Italian, and they arrived way after the, the the folks who founded the Constitution. They they are unable to see. I think most liberals are unable to see why Trump is able to to gin up all this white insecurity. They they're unable to see that. That, that it is a, a complex process. And so although when I look at, uh, with, look at these folks, and I work with very, a lot of very far right wing folks, I try to understand, Michael, their point of view, even when it's clearly wrong and limited. But I think, I don't see an effort on, uh, the liberal part to at least try to even understand it. And one reason is, is because it's repugnant, right? It's, it's racist and it's, and it's anti-immigrant and so forth and so on. I think, um, we need to look at the two-party mechanics a little bit and what it produces. Because when you only have two choices, um, 
you're either going to choose, you're going to vote for somebody, or you're going to vote against somebody, right? Mm-hmm. And those two things, practically, there is no difference. Practically, if you vote for one candidate, you're voting against the other. But if you vote against one, you're voting for the other. Uh, 2016, and this was a pretty important shift in the polling, 2016 is the first time in the history of polling where more people told pollsters that they were voting against a candidate, Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton, than voting for a candidate. So what we have is is a negative partisanship, and there's always been negative partisanship, but uh, since since 2016, that was the first time that negative partisanship was more important than actually positive partisanship or voting for somebody. So if we look at people largely now as voting against rather than voting for, then when we say, how can you possibly be for Donald Trump? He does these things. He's, you know, he's makes fun of people and he's racist and he's, um, he's puts in place, uh, horrible legislation. That doesn't matter because people aren't voting for Donald Trump as much as they're voting against a Democratic candidate. So all of those things are why Democrats vote against Donald Trump. But Republicans are voting for Donald Trump and against Hillary Clinton or Joe Biden or the Democratic Party generally because they see great abuses within the Democratic Party. And one of the things that they see is that uh, that the Democratic Party often treats them with contempt. And people treating people with contempt and calling them crazy, stupid, and evil is just not a good way to convince them of anything. So I guess a lot of oh, go ahead. I guess a lot of Democrats. I mean, I I'm in discussions and argument have just um, given up on the convincibility. Um, it's been maybe five years since I've had a really good public debate with a Republican about the Constitution, say, a uh, respectful debate on both sides, and we agreed to disagree and all that. It's been a long time since anything like that has occurred. Um, and I, I I think that, that Democrats don't believe they're contemptuous, although I think there might be some of that. It seems to me that that... A lot of the white reactionary thing, and it is mostly white, is based on a feeling of insecurity, of not being seen, and of, of contempt that I don't actually see much of it expressed. Maybe you do. I don't actually see much insult aimed at them. And well, I guess as, as Trump, as Trump stayed in office and they supported him. You know, I mean, for example, you know, the, one of the first things he does, he's running in office, he makes ridicules a reporter for his disabilities, right? Mm-hmm. And I, I went to a, a conference by a Catholic preach, uh, Richard Robert, uh, Richard Rohr, and he said, look at what happened. He said, what more do you need to know? He didn't give any long political speech. He said, look at that one thing. What more do you need to know? Basically, what more do you need to know about the guy? Can you think of another politician that we had that would have done that outside of, you know, uh, racially motivated guys in the South 40 years ago? Well, uh, what, 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 what happened with that incident and what happened over and over again with Donald Trump is he would do things. 
And I think he did this quite intentionally. He would do things that would offend people. And then uh, a lot of liberal people would express contempt about Trump and his supporters. And his supporters would even be more for them because they see liberals as being contemptuous of them. Uh, so I don't think liberals did well under Donald Trump. I, I mean, I think that there were a lot of things to criticize Trump for, and I certainly did plenty of it myself. Um, but the way that liberals ridiculed and expressed contempt for Trump supporters, that's why we got Donald Trump in the first place. I mean, Donald Trump was the, was the creation of a certain kind of contempt for people who like Donald Trump. And remember that because we're in an era of negative partisanship, it doesn't matter who you are, it matters who you're not. I agree with part of that, but not with a lot of it. Um, the more I studied uh, this whole issue of Democrats' contempt for Trump and for conservatives, the more I saw the desire to own the libs and all this stuff coming, it pre, it seems to me it predates, pre-exists any kind of democratic contempt or response to it. I think it come, my analysis and where I probably disagree with you, my analysis was that that came first. And it was very clear to me working where I, where I did that that's what, what was going on. At least in, that's my perception. Oh, it, it certainly goes both ways. The contempt cycle goes both ways. I, I don't know who started it first because these are these are feedback loops and they're cycles and they escalate very quickly. But um, but I I can tell you uh, for certain that that is that is the perception of many Trump supporters. Um, and you know, it's interesting because Trump is not particularly conservative. You know, he was, he's a populist. He, he's not, uh, conservative in any sort of ideological or movement conservative way. Uh, he's a populist and he, he flatters people and, and gives a certain segment of people what they want. Um, but conservative now has a definition, a, a de facto definition in our political discourse as somebody who hates liberals. And liberals pretty much are people who hate conservatives. And, and so we, we are defining ourselves by what we're not and by what we're opposed to at, at a rate that is absolutely unprecedented in the country. I guess I partially agree with it, but I'll, I'll say this. Take a, uh, a speech by Donald Trump and set it aside against any Democratic candidate, uh, Bernie Sanders, and look at the amount of hate, disgust, Anger expressed, personal anger, wanting to hurt the other person that you see in those two speeches, or Hillary Clinton, or, or, or Joe Biden. There is a large difference between the emotions, the psychology that Donald Trump is playing on, and pretty much anyone else in the field. I'm not talking about what the politicians are saying. Um, and that's really the whole point of the book. I'm talking about people on Facebook and people on Twitter and people interacting with each other in the public sphere. Uh, I, I think that Trump as a populist is, uh, is deprecating in ways that very, very few politicians are. 
Um, but as I look, as I watch interactions between liberals and conservatives in the media, on social media, in my own in-groups, that's where I see the contempt. And that's what gets translated over. Yeah, it's, it's, I don't see it being, frankly, much expressed publicly in, in any of the any of the official speeches and stuff. Um, it's it's very difficult, I guess. What we're having a problem with is to getting a level of respect from moderates and apolitical people, liberals, for the kind of supportable support for Donald Trump. And when they look at the kind of support, they look what he's doing, and they look at his supporters, and they look at those rallies, they see something extremely negative. And I don't know what you do about that. I mean, they have a perfect right to say so. What what worries me is that they're, is that liberals are not trying to understand the, the white replacement fears, the changes in the country. The shift in uh, the demographics. They're not trying to understand why people would be worried about that because the uh, liberals are almost entirely happy in multicultural society. They like it. It's more interesting. It's got better food. You know, that's that's kind of where I'm I'm coming from. Well, people always have deep insecurities about their safety, their security. We're programmed to be insecure about those things. Um, politicians can either fan those flames or work to provide solutions. And I think that uh, there there's a subset of politicians who've realized that you can get a lot of power by stoking this resentment and rage and making people feel insecure and then pretending to solve the problems. And yeah. that's that's basically what populism is. It's it's a, a form of government that uh, that uh, flatters. You know, one of the chapters in my book um, is called "The Other Opposite of Friendship," and it's about flattery, which is uh, which is not friendship at all. Um, but there's such a thing as flattering the public, and that's what demagogues do. Yeah, that's so a, a great title. Is a populist leader who flatters society. Yeah, and I I do think that where I really agree with you is this kind of feedback mechanism where both sides are only talking to the other. And the problem is that the polarization, I have a friend who went back to my native Oklahoma, went to his high school reunion, and he befriended all these people on Facebook. And then he got back to Arizona and he saw the kind of posts they were forwarding racist jokes and so forth and so on and he unfriended them all so the, it's the it's the level of of dichotomy i we have to work out compromises i think but i i don't quite know how how that happens i think that we have to understand the other person's point of view but i think most democrats they would say we spend a lot of time trying to understand and help them and they spend zero time trying to understand and help us that's what they would say well, we've got to ask ourselves, what's the alternative to trying to understand and persuade each other? I mean, that, that's what we've got. We've got a system of government that depends on that. We have to reach some kind of compromises and stuff. And if, let's take an example of uh, of immigration. 
we have a, a large minority who doesn't, I think in their heart of hearts, Michael, they don't want any more immigration, except maybe some people who look like them or came from the same country that they came from. Otherwise, they don't want any immigration at all. They don't want any refugees. It doesn't matter how bad the country they're fleeing is. They don't want any of them, right? And then on the other end of the spectrum, we have people who want to be open to a very large amount of immigration, which is traditionally in American society, red, know-nothing groups and so forth and so on, and a few, very, very few, that even believe in open borders, which I can understand from libertarians, but I can't understand from, from other folks. So I guess my question is to you, is is these these divisions are so strong, so you're working on something other than the political compromises between these different views. You're looking at a way to get a process going where some political process could be worked out, but not aiming at a particular result. Well, I'm I'm assuming that most people aren't going to affect major compromise in the government. Most people can work a little bit, and we can we can think a little bit more about how we talk to each other and engage with each other. And that's really what the focus of the book is. And if enough people do that, the politics will change on the theory that people get the government they deserve. We will deserve a better kind of government. But let, let's talk about persuasion for a minute, because I I think that there is a belief that persuasion is impossible, that people are so divided that they're not going to be persuaded. And that's simply not true. There's a, a, an enormous amount of research on this. People can be persuaded and are persuaded every day. All of us are persuaded every day. But we're not persuaded from a 1 to a 10. We're persuaded, if you look at the whole debate spectrum on a 10-point scale, we're persuaded from a 1.1 to a 1.2. We're persuaded a little bit towards what we see good arguments for. We're not going to go overnight. Uh, people aren't going to go from being a uh, rabid Trump-supporting anti-immigrant um, nationalist to, to being a uh, Bernie-loving um, socialist redistributionist. Nobody is converted quickly. But people will, will, can move on the scale a little bit as a result of a single conversation. And if we can just get better at doing that, we could start persuading each other a little bit more. I mean, almost everybody, if they're presented with good arguments, is going to be persuaded a little bit. They're going to move in response to arguments that are good and well-crafted. Um, a lot of people now simply won't listen to arguments from the other side because they don't want to risk being persuaded, I think, even though that's not how they would frame it to themselves or to other people. Uh, and we don't have to. We, we now we, we have efficient enough social media that we can create as many bubbles as we want, and I can be in groups of people who think exactly like me, and I can unfriend them if they don't, or even if I just interact with people I agree with more, the social media algorithms are going to sort, sort an ideological bubble for me. Um, so I think we have to risk engaging with people. We have to risk changing our own minds in order to be able to change other people's minds. 
um, we're not in a situation now where logic and reason matter much. That's um, true. I also think you make a really good point, which when people say it's not worth talking to X and you hear it from both sides, they really want, like you were saying, a kind of complete conversion or a big jump from one, one yeah. position to another. And because they can't get big jumps no matter what they say or do on either side, then they decide that it doesn't have any effect. So I think you make a very, very good point of being realistic about what argument, discussion, reason can deliver in in a political sphere. Yeah, we people don't make huge mental changes quickly. Um, but in a country of 350 million people, if enough people make small incremental changes, that leads to policy changes. Be- yes. Well, you look at the look at the uh, response to to gay marriage, for example, is some is something where everybody thought that everyone was completely locked into one position or another, and then everything just changed almost overnight. It, it was sort of amazing, and the opposition to gay marriage uh, declined to a much much smaller portion of people, and it happened very very quickly. Um, yeah. And I'm not arguing. I'm not arguing that just trying to get a liberal example, but that, but that there are times when there are some 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 um, more extensive changes. But I think you're right. I mean, I think we're. I think particularly what I hear on the liberal side is just, you know, I can't talk to those people. I'm not going to bother to talk to them anymore. Uh, they don't listen to me. Um, one of the problems we have is conspiracy theories. Uh, we've done some programs on that. It, when somebody uh, buys into a conspiracy theory, uh, the, the social scientists say they buy into more of them. Those kinds of people are really, really difficult for other people to talk to. Um, and the other thing is when we don't agree on facts, uh, Michael, what do you think about that? In other words, a lot of times when I, I get in an argument, I'm having a discussion, and I'll say, well, you know, the scientific evidence is X, and they'll say, well, that assumes you accept that. What, do, what happens we, we can't agree on facts? So let's just let's, – I want to I wanna take the question back to the fundamentals. Uh, fundamentals about human society – Reason and logic did not emerge to find the truth. They emerged to defend our positions. Uh, people, none of us, come to believe things rationally. We're very good at exercising rationality ex post facto, after the fact, in order to defend positions that we've come to. Um, the way... People, the only person, the only kind of person that is capable of persuading me of anything is someone I like, is a friend, someone I have some affection for. Um, and in order for someone to persuade me, I have to think that they're like me, that they do like me. I have to think that they respect me, that this is how human nature works. Um, if somebody believes in conspiracy theories, and I think there are plenty of them, and I think they're completely irrational, uh, but my saying that is not going to make anybody change their mind unless I'm already their friend. 
and we don't have enough friends across the aisle now, and that's really sad because that means that it's very difficult. Nobody changes their mind because somebody on Facebook calls them stupid. Nobody changes their mind because people say that they're ridiculous and they're believing in conspiracy theories. Um, persuasion takes work, and work takes friendship. I think that's another excellent point. Um, so much of what you see on on Facebook, and um, there's a local app that's uh, where your neighbors post on here in Sedona. It's all over the nation called Nextdoor. And when uh-huh. I joined it recently and I started looking at the post, um, I was uh, really appalled at my neighbors. You know, my first response is, oh, my God, I live in the same town with these people. Um, but uh, as I read more and more, I realized there's just all kinds of uh, different people doing different kinds of, uh, of, of things on these on these programs. But one of the things I see, and I think I mentioned it to you before the show, is someone posted, and this is a non-political thing, I believe. And they posted that uh, uh, basically uh, uh, the gas uh, company representative came and told them that they uh, weren't uh, they uh, were using more gas than they should be theoretically using. That they might have a gas leak. They wouldn't let the person in the house, even when they saw. Uh, he had a, a T-shirt from the company. He hadn't come in with his his uh, identification, probably because the Southwest was kind of, you know, we don't really stick to all that stuff. And then there was a whole slurry of, of comments where uh, people said you should call the police on them. It's terrible. Uh, never let anybody in. Uh, and it got more, it, what it what I saw, Michael, was it build up this rage and fear. And we're in a town where there's almost zero crime. It comes close. And, and all this fear, and I've seen it directed at people selling social, uh, solar panels. And then a few people came on board and said, no, wait a minute. You know, you're not really going to, you have no basis to call the police on this guy who's trying to, <laughs> trying to fix a gas leak in your house. You know? And, and it, the, 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 the Dialogue began to shift, but it maintained largely along the sort of paranoid, self-reinforcing route. And I, I think that uh, that uh, what you were talking about earlier in the social media, there's that's the sort of tendency. And if somebody doesn't come in and say something. Um, you know, all right. So they, they were playing music up on the airport. It's on a mesa above Sedona, and somebody wrote in denouncing her, her horrifically the horrible noise that they had. And then people came in and defended it and said, "Well, they turned the music down at ten o'clock, and it's on the airport. It's a long way from you." you know, so if people don't get out and dialogue with people who are getting on one of these jags, I, I just don't know where it goes. No, outrage is a very cheap and very powerful drug. Uh, it makes us feel good. We actually like to be outraged. And and also, outrage, and I do have a whole chapter on outrage in this book. Outrage is performative. It's not something we do for ourselves. It's something we do to signal to others that we're on the right side. So yeah, I, people live in a state of outrage, and it, it's just really tiring. I mean, I know it is physically tiring. It's not good for people physically. 
to be outraged all the time. We all know it and we say it, but people still still tendency to do it. I do want you to mention your chapter titles, which are extremely uh, extremely interesting. You have a wonderful quote from Walt Whitman welcoming Brazil to the yeah. community of nations. That's really nice. And you have um, Abraham Lincoln's. I think, but talk a little bit about your work, uh, book. It is available on Amazon, although I only see it as a Kindle book this, this time. It's available as a hardback and a Kindle, and I've had some talks with uh, the publisher about a paperback that has not come out yet. Um, that would probably be a great idea. Yeah, I think that would be very helpful. And even the Kindle's awfully expensive. Um, yes. Yeah, and I know but you don't have any control of that. Well, I want to thank you for being with us, Michael. If folks are interested in, in someone who doesn't think like everybody else, who has interesting ideas and insights, I like, uh, recommend all of Michael Austin's books. They're all available on, on Amazon. And I want to thank everybody for being with us today. And uh, join us again next week. Thank you, Michael. All right. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Been listening to Democratic Perspective, brought to you by the Verde Valley Independent Democrats, a weekly talk show focusing on the political issues facing the Verde Valley, Sedona, Northern Arizona, and our nation at large. Catch us every Monday morning after the 8 a.m. news, right here on AM 780 KAZM. It's beautiful out there, folks. Have a great day.